Good morning, good morning. It's good to be with you on this August morning. Isn't it a nice morning? You know, it's going to get real hot in a few days, so you can go ahead and enjoy this because it's not going to be like this. You'll be sweating without that AC. Uh, well, I am so excited to be with you as we zero in on week three of rebuilding. And I feel rather honored uh, to dive into the latter half of chapter two because it speaks to desire, it speaks to discontent, and what we do with it. Which I believe is so poignant as here we are 18 months into this pandemic wrestling with what does life look like? What do we even want it to look like? How do we navigate loss? Where do we go from here? I don't know about you, but life has not looked like what I would have hoped it looked like 18 months ago. Professionally, relationally, um, civically, you know, all of these things where we thought we would be or what we thought we could count on hasn't been the case. Uh, perhaps you saw this article in the New York Times by organizational psychologist uh, Adam Grant. He talks about this in-between period, and he calls it languishing, what we've all been experiencing. And it's not a, it's not a lack of energy. It's not, it's not even a lack of joy, per se, but it's a lack of vision of what could be. He wrote this, languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. And it might be the dominant emotion of 2021. He later stated, the pandemic has dragged on and the acute state of anguish has given way to a chronic condition of language. So this low grade feeling of discontent or high grade for some of us too, uh, no matter what you've gone through, you're, you're wrestling with this, whether it's been financial ruin. If you've been a small business owner, I can't even imagine what these past 18 months have been like. Um, if, if we've watched the discord and the division in our nation over racial justice, we've watched uh, women's issues at the forefront in the past few years, all of these things, you know, the belief in science, you know, all of these things that have come to the forefront of things we thought we knew, and we perhaps are living in something that no longer serves us. And for a lot of people, it hasn't been serving them for a really long time. So here we are. It's time to rebuild. It's a long obedience in the same direction to rebuild something. And I feel like we could all use a collective smoke break, especially with this Delta Plus. <laughs> that Delta Plus is going to get us, y'all. It's going to get us. Oh, the vid won't give up. Anyway, you know what? It's a Pacific Northwest, just so I don't get in trouble or Brian doesn't get more than 10 emails. You know, we can have some kombucha, maybe some cold brew, and we won't got to smoke it out. I, I went to Dare. It seems more Pacific Northwest, a little on brand. But, you know, here's the reality. We aren't the first people to experience this collective need for a break. This collective need to regroup, to, to take five, you know. P.S. I do tell my kids I'm going on a smoke break regularly. They don't even know what it means, but it works. I'm like, stay in your bedroom. Jesus, please stay in your bedroom. I'm going to put a lock on that from the outside. Um, so as we, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 2, we are going to see some languishing. Because we're going to look at this picture of the ancient world that they were going through a lot of things that had been more than 18 months, more like 100 years of languishing, wanting to rebuild. So before we dive in and I read, I just want to give a little bit of the backstory uh, in case you haven't brushed up on your ancient history. I, in, in this time and place, the Babylonians conquered Judah in 586 BC. And then Persia conquered the Babylonians in 539 BC. And then within a year, 
Cyrus, the the king of the Persian Empire, he was rather benevolent in that he let the Jews return to their homeland to worship their gods, to continue their ethnic traditions as they pleased. So we, we see Nehemiah in 445 BC, but we're, we're back right now in 539, so almost 100 years before that, and they get to start going home. So there's a first wave that goes, and we can see this in the book of Ezra, there's about 42,000 people going back. They are ethnic outsiders, they're going back, they wanna reclaim, they wanna rebuild. They've been second citizens. They've been treated as less. And all they want is their dignity and their place and their space. A hundred years. Think about a hundred years in our nation. Who's looking for dignity and respect? Think of the ethnic minorities who are looking for that respect and dignity. Think of the women's rights in the last hundred years. Last hundred and one years to be specific. Think of what they're looking for. Think of how that's manifesting in our time and day. Now, don't you think they're tired? For justice, for hope, for what should be, for respect, for honor, for dignity in their own place. Wanting something from someone who doesn't see them as enough, who doesn't want to give it to them. The geopolitical tension of that time for them to return. There's so much to this. There's so much meat to this. So when we think about this idea of rebuilding, even this church is 124 years old. So much time of rebuilding. And sometimes you just add a gas. You've been going and going and the opposition is too much. And you're that one lady with the meme who's always going like this with the sunglasses and the pink blazer. She's my favorite. And she's tired. We're tired. So as we look at that in our time and place, that's where we find our lead. That's where we find Nehemiah. The exiles had already returned, but they were tired You know, the temple had been rebuilt. It had opposition, mixed results. He also had a a sponsored, you know, exodus journey to back to the promised land from the Persian Empire. And last week, uh, Pastor Ryan talked about Nehemiah as the cupbearer. He had access to resources. He had an ear of his superior, and he used his resources well. And then he made a plan. He got what he needed. And he headed off with timidity and confidence, not, excuse me, (laughs) timidity. No, we don't need that. He headed off with confidence, not arrogance, not timidity, but humility. So here we are in the first first part of the story, the latter half of chapter 2. So let's zoom in on this, starting in verse 11. First person essay, here we go. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, very significant, I slipped out during the night taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. Don't you kind of want him to be on like a steed, like a big old horsey, but nope, just a donkey. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burn gates. Also, I have a fifth grader, jackal's well and dung gate. That's funny stuff. Verse 14, then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So, though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing. For I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. So here we have it. The political leaders that were returning, also the priestly leaders. 
But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked. I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. So what do we see here? Well, we, can, we can gather from this text that he is going, he doesn't want to show up like, I'm the savior on the scene, I've got a plan. There's been people doing the work for a real long time. He's not the Messiah that they've been waiting for. I mean, really, he becomes a building project manager. What do project managers even do? We don't even know. So... <laughs> You know when you see, like, on Indeed, project manager, you're like, what? Does that, what? Am I actually going to be doing 9 to 5? I don't even know, right? This isn't a prophet, priest, or king. This isn't like a headliner from the Old Testament, okay? This is somebody who was organized. That was the greatest gift that he brought to the table and well-resourced, well-resourced. So he goes. He takes a minute. He anticipated resistance because, remember, up to this point, he's only heard about the ruins. This is the first time. He's seen them. What was the difference maker? Proximity to pain. Proximity to purpose. Proximity to promise. You could argue all three. It was proximity that made the difference. So many of us hold a stereotype or, or view or way of thinking because we have not had proximity to something different than us. So we're dead set in our ways and the algorithm is only confirming our bias. But what we need is to go by night, just us. Not with the voices of the Facebook. Don't you hope it just dies a painful death? Oh my gosh, hate it so much. You don't need the voices of even those you trust just yet. You need to go, just you and the Lord. And allow yourself to be proximate to pain. Allow yourself to be proximate to the problems not that you're, this is a charity case and you're there to fix everything. Notice that he doesn't roll in, acting like he's the best thing that ever happened. He's very aware that people have gone before and done a good work. But he also wants to play his critical role. I love that. He knows he's got gas in the tank too. And he wants to be part of a movement that's been going on long before him and that will go on long after him. And that's what we in the kingdom are doing, right? We are joining a movement. We're rebuilding what's been broken because rebuilding is only necessary because there's been devastation. It's only necessary because there was pride and arrogance rather than humility. And we know he was going to anticipate some resistance, but let's camp on this, those three days that he took to himself where he observed, again, not on his trusty steed, but on its donkey. I just love that they included that. He felt like he needed that in his journal. I was on my donkey. Could you imagine if, I'm just sorry, we've got to play this out. Can you imagine if you were journaling, you're like, I drove my Honda Prius <laughs> to, the, to the Whole Foods. You know what I mean? Like, it just isn't unnecessary. Anyway, there we go. Uh, but let's look at this discontent and desire and what we can grapple with our own. You, you can imagine this restlessness bubbling up because here we are. He is standing in the aftermath of disobedience to God. 
The people of God, the Jewish people, they were disobeying. They broke the covenant of their job to commune with the divine and to love others. They gave up on their first love, and that's what got them in the mess in the first place. But he doesn't look at it as somebody else's problem or I got to clean up somebody else's mess. Which I will just say right now, I live with two boys and there's a lot of Legos. And sometimes I just don't have energy, so I just start sweeping them. Just sweeping them because I'm like, nope, this is your mess. Fine, I'm not going to be a part of this, but should I be a part of this? Because I like organization and tidiness. And then that's why I have Legos imprinted in my feet. So when you go and you are observing this mess looking through the rubble of our own lives, just like Nehemiah did, looking through the rubble of the destruction that he lives in in his time and place, he's asking himself, what do I do with this? You see this in-between of discontent and desire. You see, it's his discontent with what he saw that drove his desire. And his desire to rebuild continued to foster his discontent. Dare I say his holy discontent. Something that he knew he could be a part of fixing, playing that critical role that only he could do for community renewal. I also just want to say, as I said, he was a project manager. Let us not get into the habit of comparing occupation, desire, a holy discontent. That's a dangerous place to be because it takes all kinds in the kingdom. It takes all kinds to rebuild. Each of us playing to our strengths not looking like the people that we even admire, because even that's idolatrous, but just being the fullness of who we are, our wisdom, our knowledge, our experiences. The world may keep on spinning if you don't show up for your own life, but you won't. You won't. To dig into what he knew he could do, his critical role with his access to resources, his access to power, however much it was or wasn't, he wanted to play his part. In verse 12 reads, I had not told anyone about the plans of God that he had put in my heart. But as he played this out, he took time to assess the situation. And I think especially right now, 18 months in, and with that Delta Plus on our butts, we got we to gotta take a minute and we have got to assess that, that private secrecy. That small moment, I, I was recently um, reading a book called The Whole Complete Book of Discipleship by Bill Hull, which I thought was really ballsy to say it, the whole complete. You know what? Lord, give me the confidence of a mediocre white man to be actually like, this book has everything. You don't need no other books. Oh, my gosh. I was like, well, we're going to just disregard the title. Subtitle is great. Don't remember it, but I really stuck. But, but in this book, he talks about spiritual formation, and, and one of the practices was a bit new to me, and I really valued it. He said the practice of secrecy. The practice of secrecy. This is a practice with the divine that we can use day in and day out before we go to people we love, before we go to our spouse, before we go to our friends and our mentors, our boss, whoever, whoever that person is that you want to process with. And I'm like an extrovert to the max, extroverted, extrovert, wing extrovert. I want to process with everybody. I'm like, yes, you called to steal my social security number, but let's just talk about my minor traumas. You know what I mean? Like, let's just go there. <laughs> So we can remember that it's good for us without any outside influence, just us and the Lord. In that private place where he can speak into that, we can ponder why we're doing what we're doing. Last week, Pastor Brian said, what do you want? And this week I ask, why do you want it? 
Why do you want what you want? Especially where you financially might not be where you thought you'd be, relationally, spiritually. Some friends you thought you kind of were on the same page and you are very much not on the same page. And it's rocked your world. And your world became smaller. You're assessing who sits at the table of your heart. We're adults. we got maybe three spots, really. Right? Can't spread ourselves thin. we got to ask ourselves a few questions. Does my discontent lead me to holy desires? Ones that honor the Lord? That do no harm against my body, heart, or mind? That serve others? Or are they neutral to others? Or do they harm others? If others are harmed, would I care? Do I have something to gain if they are? Next, does it commit to rebuilding, tearing down, or ignoring what's happening in my life, in my relationships, in my community, in my faith community? This discontent, am I doing this because it just makes me feel good? But we all won't feel good. Am I trying to control a situation that I honestly can't? And this is a matter of pride? Is this discontent and this desire fueled by some insecurity that I haven't satiated in the person of Jesus? I want my mama too. Am I trying to restore something that's been broken or simply trying to make the pain go away? I'm not here to learn something from my pain. I'm just here to numb it. And why? Why? Because when we're healed, then we can be that blessing to others. We're going to bear fruit. Let it taste good, right? I think so many of us fail to address this hunger and this idol of security as we talk about discontent and desire. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, the, oh, I'll feel secure and I'll feel whole when I've got, can lease a Tesla or have that $1.75 scoop of guac at Chipotle. By the way, I think they raised it to two twenty-five. those jackals. But this, this idea of security, we so badly want security. Uh, I, I often speak to women. That's, that's my bread and butter is where I speak. And so many of them, it's not that they want, you know, the big job or the man or this, that, and that. They just want security. They just want to feel like they can put gas in their car the next day, do what they need to do, show up, feed their babies, and just get through the day. Security. Security is a poor idle. Is it necessary? Of course we want to feel secure. Safe, safety and emotional security, financial security, relational security. But when it becomes the lens in which we see through, that can be dangerous because it can choke the voice, the presence, and desire that Jesus might be working in us. I had a bit of a come to Jesus moment um, about that Recently, I think in this first world, me first thinking, we're like, no, Lord, you can use these gifts and talents and skills and abilities and resources and knowledge and wisdom because I want you to. (laughs) What about the ones we don't want to use? What about the ones we want to keep on the shelf? What about the parts of our story that we're like, you know what? We're just going to, we're just going to tuck that back there. We're going to ignore that. What if he's asking you to do something that's, dare I say, sacrificial or that pushes you, and you're like, you know, this doesn't fit with my Western understanding of Christianity. If in the end I don't feel good, I don't want it, right? And if, you, if you've been spoon-fed this belief that that is the goal of the Christian life, I am so sorry to tell you, you've got to crucify that. You've got to crucify that. That needs to die a gruesome death on the cross, because that is not why you exist. 
what is offered to you is far more robust, far sweeter, far more vibrant. Life with Christ, ooh, that tastes good. This internal assessment that Nehemiah made led to an external invitation for others to join in the good work. In verse 17, he calls the leaders and he says, you know very well what trouble we, we, not you, we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. He identified himself with the problem. It wasn't their problem. It was his problem. When we look at what's happening in the world, it's like, oh, that's their problem. They did that to themselves. Fill in the blank. You know you said it. Whatever stereotype you have on a people group, uh, a particular way of thinking, oh, this is their problem. This is their problem to solve. In fact, uh, my recent work uh, is about how uh, the imbalance of power and how men and women operate with power and what does it look like with a biblical worldview to operate with power in the world when you have it, when you don't, and how you treat others and how that matters and a framework of understanding power, all that good stuff. So fun. And it's been interesting because I've, I've been on many um, interviews, about a, I've done about 100 interviews, and over half of them were white men interviewing me. And they're like, so what do you think, um, you know, this is a women's issue that women are treated poorly by men and, how, and they, what they need to do about it. So what do you think, what do you think their job is to fix it? And I was like, Brahim, you want to know how we got here? <laughs> you want to know how we got here? Because abuse of power. How did Israel get themselves in that position? Because they abused the power God had given them. They took advantage of it. And they were compromising at every turn. But Nehemiah, again, doesn't treat it like charity. He says, I, I might have contributed in ways I didn't realize, but I want to be part of the answer. And I want to use what I have to jump in and be part of the answer. And we can do that too. With whatever skills, gifts, and abilities. But here comes that external pushback in verse 19. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked. So Sanballat was the governor of Samaria to the north. Tobiah ruled the Ammonites to the east. And Geshem was the leader of the Arabs to the south. They all opposed a fortified Jerusalem. It would not serve their political intentions for Jerusalem to be on its feet, for Jerusalem to feel a sense of dignity and respect and identity and ownership, for them to believe that they could overcome would threaten their geopolitical ideas of what should be in that time and place. In our lives, we would be foolish to think that we aren't going to have pushback. How do you, pushback is half the reason we're so tired. And the Delta, we know. But pushback, pushback will wear you down so slowly. If any of you have argued with a 10-year-old, you know what I'm talking about. That pushback will make you want to go binge on Netflix at like 7 p.m., right? No, just me. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> they didn't care about the plight of the Jewish people. They didn't care if they succeeded. There's a whole lot of people who don't care if we advance. There's a whole lot of people who don't care if we rebuild. There's a whole lot of people who are okay if we just stay the same. But rebuilding not only 
is a matter of identifying what we're languishing over and sitting with that discontent and desire and allowing God to speak into it. It also means standing up, allowing that internal resolve to stand against external pushback. Because Nehemiah, he did not rely on his connections to the king of the Persian Empire. He relied on his commitment to what God was asking him to do. That's what he relied upon. I'm speaking to calling a little bit here this morning. So I just want a little caveat here. Calling isn't all of your hopes and dreams coming true. Again, what we've been fed to believe that if this feels good, it must be right. If this feels good and appears holy, this must be the will of God. No, calling is not your hopes and desires coming true. Wouldn't that be great? But it's not. So sorry. Calling is ordinary faithfulness. Showing up to your place and your space each and every day with your gifts, your skills, your talents, your abilities. And showing up to not tear down in the smallest or the biggest of ways, but to rebuild one conversation, one relationship, one action, one investment at a time. With your whole being, ordinary faithfulness looks like following Jesus even in a time of secrecy. Because I think sometimes when it's a good thing that we're excited about, we want to share with people, the Lord's moving, the Lord's doing things. I have something to tell you. Uh, a couple years ago, I was doing all I could to learn about the publishing industry. And uh, I'd, I'd written for a long time. I'd ghostwritten for other people and written Bible studies for the church I worked at, different things like that. But uh, I really, really, really wanted to, uh, to pursue publishing. And so I saved up my pennies and I went to a publishing conference after I got about 50, I don't know, 50 rejection letters from agents and publishers. Um, And I thought, man, if I could just get in person and do a live pitch. And so I saved up my pennies, went to the East Coast for this publishing conference and did all the things and got the resources I needed, got access to people who had the power, who could make things happen, had some great conversations. And about five weeks later, I had a publishing contract and I was so excited. I'm like, oh my gosh. Here we go. Did this. And in my excitement, when it still should have been a secret, when it was still just in its infancy, I shared it with somebody. And they said, why do you think you need to do that? Why do you, why do you, why do you think that's what the Lord has for you right now? When you share something in its infancy and the resolve hasn't developed yet, it hasn't turned to cement, letting other people put their fingers into that imprint, that can really mess with you. That secret place, the resolve that comes from that secret place is so necessary in our formation as we take our place to rebuild. We have to know not only what we want, but why we want it. The band can come up. As we follow Jesus, as we play our part, we can remember that he's good, he's gracious, he's merciful. Again, Nehemiah, don't build him up as some like incredible leader. We see in later chapters, he's, he gets real angry and actually attempts to pull people's hair out. Truly, truly he does. He's pretty mad about how this all went down. He's not this like picture-perfect leader. And we have a tendency to, to apply this almost euphoric recall on past events and thinking we only see the bright spots. We only see what went well. 
we fail to see what went poorly. And that's why we have Jesus. And that's why the great rebuilder, the one who faced the ultimate opposition, is the one we're following. We're not following the likes of Nehemiah. If we turned into this into a leadership lesson, we have failed the text. We failed the text. When we see this through the light of Jesus, that's where the goodness is. That's what shines. We know that the rebuilder we're following is one who won't give up on us. <laughs> Even if we tap out and need a smoke break, he's going to stay tapped in. He's going to stay tapped in. Did you hear that? I don't know about you, but we could all take some time to sit back and assess. To just take a minute and remember that he'll stay. He's rebuilding with us. We are not alone. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you lead us and guide us. Thank you that you're always enough. Thank you that we don't walk this out. But as we rebuild in this place, in this time, in this moment in history, when we show up and play our part, we're following you. We're going to look like you. We're going to rebuild like you. Till the very end. Until we see you face to face. In your name. Amen.